0: Wenn ich dir noch angeseh'n, so bist du's hier allein. Was ist wu?
1: This is The New Right, a podcast for the lost arts, reclaiming the literary holy land from the heathen. This is Matt Pegas. And this is Dan Baltic. And we're here with our first uh, Matt and Dan, you know, solo episode in a while, um, which is it's good to be back, isn't it, Dan?
2: It's great to be back. It's, <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's been no. too long. We it should do this every week.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. No, I feel like we, as we talked about on our episode where we posted our recordings from the safety propaganda event, um, you know, there's a little bit of a protracted summer thing for me with with the pod. Um, but this feels a little bit like back to school, uh, which is great. And um, in honor Absolutely. of that, I think we have a pretty, pretty long, uh, pro- we you know, we never set a runtime on the outset, you know, but I think this one is going to be a long one, one that you're going to want to listen to. Um, but uh, without further throat clearing, today, we're going to be talking about Selective Breeding and the Birth of Philosophy uh, by Kostin Almaryu, um, the biggest book in this scene in some time, uh, one of the biggest ever. Uh, it briefly briefly cl- cracked uh, the uh, top 25 bestsellers list on Amazon when it came out in September. Uh, it's continued to do really well ever since. It's a bit of a landmark in dissident right publishing, shall we say, um and definitely something that we wanted to give some attention there's been a couple good articles and podcasts about it um our friend bennett's phylactery did a, did a really good podcast that kind of summarizes uh, a lot of the core arguments and ties it in with you know his natalist conference um absolutely and so. that is
2: on the exit podcast which yes. is uh his organization the exit group so people should but, check uh, that out
1: um you know yeah, in a, yeah go on dan sorry <laughs>
2: Oh, but I was going to say, but if you have to listen to one podcast about selective reading and the birth of philosophy, it should be this one, New Right, and we are going to do a, the best, most excellent job breaking it down.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, the intention um, <clears throat> is to summarize the core arguments in the book um, and also extrapolate upon them. Um, You know, a lot of people bought this book, uh, but not everyone will read it. That's just the way these things go. So if you maybe you've bought the book and you haven't read it yet, this could be a primer. Or maybe if you haven't bought it yet, you could decide whether or not you want to pursue these ideas further by buying it. This is meant to be um, one, us giving our own thoughts on it, but also hopefully, you know, as like a book review often is, you know, a way that, you know, someone who wants to know more about the book can can kind of dive in. So it's meant to be a tool for all of you out there um, to to learn a little more. Uh, I guess we should just get into it.
2: <laughs> Sounds um, good, man.
1: Yeah. So I have, uh, I read the book. Um, it is uh, philosophy, you know, uh, going back to what I was saying a moment ago, you know, as it's not, uh, you know, so obviously Bronze Age Mindset is a uh, is a book with many profound ideas and, and an important book, uh, but uh, it's, BAP always says, you know, it's exhortation, not philosophy. Uh, it's a bit more of a quick and breezy read compared to this. This uh, is, you know, philosophy in the true sense. Uh, it will, It. I, I'm, I'm trying to avoid sounding um, pretentious, but, you know, it's the type of thing that you, one does benefit from having had some background in philosophy and some training um, to read and read effectively. Um, I uh, never would claim to be a philosopher, never would claim to have uh, too great a skill in this department. However, I have read um, something, uh, you know, quite a bit of Plato, quite a bit of Nietzsche, and quite a bit of Strauss, who are probably the three most important philosophers behind this book. And and maybe more important than that... uh, (laughs) Not to not that this is much of a credential, uh, but I have, you know, obviously Red Bronze Age Mindset, obviously been following BAP um, since 2018, and I have re- listened to every uh, Caribbean Rhythms episode. Um, so I, I would place myself as having a good background on BAP. Um, a caveat to that, I have not listened to the latest Caribbean Rhythms. I'm waiting to go to the gym, because um, again, I, I guess I'm just... Painting myself as a as a total cliche uh, frog Twitter subject here, uh, but I do like to listen to Caribbean rhythms at the gym. Uh, but other than the latest one, I've listened to every episode. Um, what, what am I really trying to say here? Just uh, I, I think I'm well positioned to talk a bit about BAP and um, the fact that I'm saying BAP, BAP, BAP maybe uh, get, uh, is, is a good time mm-hmm. to mention that, of course, this book is not technically by BAP, but rather by Kostin Vlad Alamaryu. Um, listen, like they are separate authorial entities for sure. Um, Coastin and Bap, but, uh, at the same time, the cats come decidedly out of the bag. So while I was taking the notes for this, I, at first I was like, well, I'm just going to refer to him as Coastin throughout this out of respect for the separate authorial entity thing. But, um, yeah, no, on that note about Caribbean rhythms and bronze age mindset, I mean, the, the ideas in selective breeding and the birth of philosophy, they're presented differently, but they are quite unmistakably also the ideas that bap talks about so um all that is to say you know i i want to acknowledge <laughs> that they are separate authorial entities and i'm obviously not trying to dox anyone but the you know the cat is decidedly oh, yeah. out of the bag <laughs> on this one and it's kind of impossible to talk about the one uh without without the other um you have any thoughts on that dan i know um, I mean, I don't so, know what to say yeah. you haven't read all the book yet, but we're you know we're going to be bouncing ideas. I mean, in fact, topic. I but, will be
2: honest. I purchased the the book, which I imagine is probably among the best selling theses ever, right? Uh, college or PhD thesis, these, yeah. Um, and I purchased it to uh, help uh, Bap Kostin, crack the, the Amazon top twenty five or whatever. And indeed, I I guess my efforts were uh, successful because he really did get up there. And I do want to read it at some point. It is a heavy tome, as you said, a a kind of touchstone uh, publication for the dissident right, both in weight and in substance. So uh, I'm sure I will get to it at some point. But Matt, you have read the whole thing. You have written an extensive outline. This is a beast of an outline. I read your outline, which I felt like I read the whole thing, and um, (laughs) it, as you were saying, you. you I think you're a little too modest here. You do have a real background in philosophy. You were a philosophy major. You have read a lot of this stuff. You are. Maybe the biggest, you know, uh, Baptist that I know in terms of having, uh, maybe not in lifestyle or practice, but in terms of, like, you know, following his works, his writing. So, like, I don't think there is anyone more qualified to do this spot than you have. So, <laughs> well, um, I'm excited.
1: That. Um, yeah, no, I, I asked Dan yesterday, are you ready for 20 pages of single space <laughs> oh, It's like the Green, the Fuzzy. And I delivered... Um, I don't know about most qualified. You know, philosophy major can mean a lot of different things. Uh, it can mean everything from you <laughs> spent four years smoking weed to. Uh, so I think I got some some decent training in it. Um, uh, I guess I guess I have this uh, knee jerk, you know, desire to to not um, claim uh, claim anything so high. I mean, I, I would I would say the people that have written reviews on it uh, are are very much worth checking out and did inform. Mm. Some of what I've written here too, and I don't know, I'm just naming them at the top because I'll probably reference them throughout, you know, Richard Hanania, uh, people have mixed takes on him, but he wrote a pretty good review. Um, Mm. Michael Millerman, of course, who I, Mm. to the degree that I've studied Strauss, it was mostly online with Michael. Um, Mm. And uh, what's his name? Uh, Steven. Oh, uh, Pimentel. Steven Pimentel, who who I've met in person at the Yarvin event we had in LA. Uh, Also Mm. a great, um, you know, kind of, I don't know if he'd call himself a philosopher, you know, it's this terrible thing, like, you don't want to call yourself a philosopher, it's this cringe well, It's kind of like calling yourself thing. a hamster, right? Yeah, yeah uh, but but Stephen Pimentel is very well versed in philosophy and um, Devin Strauss and wrote a great great article uh, for for Man's World um, so I, I'm indebted to those people as well um, but as you alluded to, it is a dissertation which it's kind of an interesting literary form it's 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 the literary form that um that a lot of people you know a lot of public intellectuals and others have written a dissertation but very few people actually read dissertations um most of them are literally only read by uh pretty much the committee that um you know I, is the word grade I don't know. I've never gotten to grad school, so I don't know you know the the, the committee that um that reads the dissertation is usually where where mm. it begins and ends um but this and as Koston, uh, acknowledges in his preface like this one is very entertaining and contains um fiery fiery ideas so uh yeah no it's it's a thesis it reads like a thesis, but it reads like a very good and exciting thesis. It's actually been just more background you know it's been available online for free for years. I never sought it out um, for for a number of reasons. Um, I mean, one, it's not like I read everything that seems possibly interesting. And two, there was a while where it was like, well, you know, is this East Coast in or East Coast not BAP? You know, I, I was almost out of a sign of respect, like I didn't want to be the one of the people digging into that too much. But of course, now um, the book has been published, um, and it's much nicer to read as a book than a PDF form. And crucially, uh, my understanding is the, um, the original version of the thesis, uh, did not have, it certainly didn't have the preface, but I don't even think it had the introduction. Um, and the introduction is very, very good. If you're not going to read the whole book, I would highly recommend you at least read the introduction. You know, if the rest of the book is pretty heavy scholarly material on Pindar and Plato and Nietzsche. Uh, then the introduction uh, is really none of those things. The introduction re- to me, the the comparison I, I like to make is it, it reminds me a lot of um, the sort of like, uh, I don't want to use the term red because it's overdone, but the sort of like uh, my eyes are open to new feeling uh, that I got uh, while reading the first chapter of Camille Paglia's Sexual Personae, the introduction to that book, um, both are really good distillations of, you know, years and years of scholarly work. Um and both are, you know, in in in, in both Palias and Bapp's cases, uh, in both Poly, I should say both Paulias and Kostin's cases, um, both the whole work but also the introduction are very concerned with this idea of nature and really getting back to understanding what nature is as a dark force. Um so mm-hmm. I make the comparison that way. Like if you're not gonna read the whole book, at least look at the intro. It reads that, that part of the book reads much more, um, breezily. And, you know, I, am not one of these people that ever would suggest reading a summary in place of the real thing. However, Costin does pretty much summarize every point he later gets into in that introduction. Like you will walk away from reading the introduction with a, with a, with an understanding of the whole of the thesis really. So it's, uh, it's well worth reading. And again, yeah, that was not in, the version of the thesis that was available online um he also changed the name i think it used to be called i have it written down here somewhere hold on a sec um it used to be just simply called uh in a way that i would describe as sort of more straussian between lines it used to be called the problem of tyranny and philosophy and the thought of plato and nietzsche uh to me that sounds interesting but it you know it's very much thesis territory you know a writer writing about the thought of another person, but it's been retitled, of course, Selective Breeding and the Birth of Philosophy, which is a title that is sure to turn some heads. And also, you know, obviously, Kostin will tell you he's indebted to Nietzsche, most of all to Nietzsche, but also to Plato and Strauss every step of the way. But, you know, by calling it Selective Breeding and the Birth of Philosophy, um, it's a little more of a ballsy title. Like, I'm really going to lay this stuff as I see it.
2: Yeah, catch here, that's for
1: sure. Definitely. Um, but anyway, I, I, you know, I think we're kind of going to go through the book a little bit chronologically. Um, so let me... Yeah, I'll, I'll keep talking about the introduction for, for a short while here. Um, yeah, I mean, the new introduction, it's more cautiously worded than something like Bronze Age Mindset, but nevertheless, it's definitely a half or a full step towards, you know, being much more explicit about what he is talking about, you know, sans the introduction preface, basically what you have in the thesis is coast talking about the ideas as presented by Plato. And then by way of Nietzsche, which, you know, Nietzsche is an incredibly lucid and clear writer. Um, You know, the ideas are there, but nevertheless, um, very much, uh, gloss on them is, uh, to the tune of, you know, this, and he even talks about this in his preface, like, uh, summarizing ideas as presented by Nietzsche uh in the thesis, whereas in the introduction he brings these ideas much more uh squarely uh w- whereas in the in his introduction he brings the ideas much more squarely in line with the um with with his own views I guess you could say or or with uh with what you might call frog twitter talking points um he he talks he ties in a lot of what could be considered classic online right talking points like um the sexual marketplace as presented by f roger devlin looms very large in the introduction um obviously getting more explicitly into hpd genetic differences type topics um and he talks a lot about the rise of the what he calls you know the alt-right uh to his thesis um the specific definition of that uh, of the alt right that he marks himself as caring about uh you know cuz he talks about how it is um kind of a how, how basically what what got called the the alt right in like 2016 2017 days was actually uh a number of different phenomena happening at the same time you got you kind of have this rebranding of old school racism which he uh, basically dismisses if for its bad PR, if nothing else. Uh, you have the global swell in like nationalist sentiment, which obviously we know he he does support. But really, what he's talking about when he talks about the rise of the alt right is um, the, the alt right is like a youth youth movement and a flourishing of, of youthful energies and critique of um, the status quo, a, a critique of the kind of liberal uh, blank slated the like the liberal blank slateism as bourgeois morality that we've kind of all been subjected to through academia and the media, etc. Um
2: so uh just to yeah. uh jump in here for a moment to clarify his
1: view of the alt-right here is a more expansive one, right? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um much more expansive, definitely not like the Charlottesville mm-hmm. stuff, and rather you know, it, it's it's really what he what he what Bap always talks about. You know, the the energy of people on places like 4chan and now on Twitter, and and just the general um, movement as a critique more so than an ideology. I think the general youthful rejection of um, basically a blank slateism, if you, if you had to sum it up. in To one draw part. an
2: interesting parallel, it seems similar to the. Uh... Uh, the phenomenon portrayed by the uh director of um the the documentary about he will not divide us yes. uh, the, the dividers Definitely. and yeah. that kind of energy of you know people pushing back against regime propaganda um using the iconography of the alt right and um you know th- this um this side of the internet more broadly And um, it seems to be, you know, something Mm -hmm. that a lot of normal, uh, quote unquote normal, but um, a lot of uh, non, not specifically ideological people who are just reacting against an ideology that uh, is anti-life, anti-whatever. Yeah. And to, to me, from your outline, this seems to be what uh, BAP is, You know, the group that BAP is trying to designate as alt-right.
1: A- absolutely. Uh, and again, he probably would not even use that term now. It's more referring to some, you know, because that term is dead, right? But, uh, but 2016, 2017, oh. you know, he's, you know, the Ricky Vaughn era, shall we say. Um. Yeah, no, I think it is similar to what Uh, Josiah was talking about on our pod We did about the Dividers documentary Uh, That being said I I mean I do think definitely There is a positive view in BAP And and a positive view he would Ascribe to this youthful energy I don't think He's just saying like you know Criticism for its own sake or anything but I do Think he specifically wants to cite uh, The The energies of of, You know these young mostly men uh, You know who would be interested In topics like philosophy um, And you know are, are intelligent and, and and vital and have a lot to offer, but are are living in a society that is stifling in, in its in, in its um in the lame morality it peddles, um based upon again mostly blank slightism So he signs out of that. There's an interesting parallel with Strauss. Um, there's this great article that I've written about elsewhere uh, called German Nihilism that Strauss wrote about the uh, revolutionary conservative movement, which as many of our Listeners probably know, you know, is not it was like you know, Weimar era, Weimar era, you know, um, German intellectual critique of uh, the status quo of that time ended up um, many of these philosophers, <laughs> like Arthur Moller vanderbrook uh, obviously Heidegger, um, Spangler, uh, Younger, Younger, Ernst Younger has even lumped in with these people and Carl Schmitt, you know, obviously some of them to varying degrees ended up um, influencing the Nazis, uh, but many of them actually were you know against many of their wills uh, shall we say a lot of them when mm. when 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 that party actually rose to power were, were highly critical others mm. uh not as critical <laughs> like mm. heidegger um even Schmidt, to a certain extent although Schmidt later became friends with strauss and you know a lot of them are are complicated figures uh but suffice it to mm. say um their movement was revolutionary conservative was right wing uh did inspire fascism but wasn't necessarily by its own will a lot of them probably saw that as a, as extreme reduction uh, of what they were trying to do but strauss um you know who's a, a german jewish emigre uh, to the united states a refugee essentially from nazism uh had uh positive things to say about the kind of the spark um, behind their critique. He basically said that they were reacting to the very real threats of Bolshevism and that, you know, maybe I think his point, which is a very Straussian way of putting it, but maybe there's something to this, is that they basically needed better teachers, you know, mm-hmm. and that they were living in this Weimar era where, all the teachers were, um, you know, I think I think in his parlance, which I think Coastal might actually critique, but not even get into that. All the teachers were all their teachers were relativists and liberals not open to any other ideas, wouldn't acknowledge the fundamental validity of their critique against, um, you know, the last man life uh, that they saw uh, Bolshevism as leading to toward uh, and therefore, um, you know, their ideas. Fell into the wrong hands, uh, as Strauss might might put it. Uh, but nevertheless, what's remarkable to me is that rather than being one of these hand-wringing like, people that's like, we can't touch touch those ideas of the 10-foot pole, he he basically affirms them. And um, in many ways, and I think this is a little ambiguous in Strauss's writing, uh, but I, I when you read more Strauss, it starts to come through. And I think it's probably how Kostin reads Strauss. Uh, basically, that he was, in fact, a dogmatic Nietzschean, and therefore probably uh, agreed with these revolutionary conservatives on a, on a great many points. Um, we'll talk if more I about Strauss so later. Yeah.
2: Bold. This seems to uh, draw a stark, uh, not stark, a, a very, uh, you know, accurate parallel to uh, today. Right. With, no, absolutely. Uh, yeah. That's movements, uh conservative youth movements, uh, not having good teachers. The teachers are all relativists. Exactly. They're not really relativist. Yeah, they're not really and, relativists. Is the problem. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, needing direction,
1: mm-hmm.
2: and yeah,
1: so this uh, this could not be more relevant. Oh yeah, no, it's highly relevant. I think I just, I mean, listen, I don't want to start making, uh, st- you know, making claims that are untrue, but I can't, you know, obviously, Coast and Thread Strauss extensively. I almost wonder if, if by talking about the youthful. You know, element of the uh, dissident right. He is, in fact, almost citing that German nihilism piece in a way. It's, it's probably would be very familiar to him, and I think he is making um, a similar argument. And and yes, it's highly relevant uh, to the way things are now. I, you know, one one common uh, this this is another example of something that like Bap says, and then you see Coast and say it again. So it's like, yeah, obviously. You know, they're this. It's the same same author on some level. Um, you know, he always talks about how you know Strauss's student Alan Bloom was very incorrect. Um, that you know the problem was relativism. You know, Alan Bloom in his book Closing of the American Mind basically, um, portrays the problem with current academia as being one of two great a commitment to relativism and coast slash bad basically says entirely wrong. Uh, you know, the modern academic movement is rapidly ideological and not relativistic and, and moral and in fact, very moralistic. I agree with that take. I wonder, I almost wonder, this is kind of an aside. I almost wonder if Alan Bloom, because in the book, in closing in the American mind, he talks about how influenced by how, how influenced modern American intellectualism is by, um, basically uh german thinkers so i almost wonder if alan bloom was overextending like i I kind of get the impression i'm I'm not the expert on this but i kind of get the impression that um that that the weimar era intellectuals probably were very relativistic i don't think they they were obviously weren't woke or anything equivalent so i think they were the relativists alan bloom probably takes that idea and says well americans are relativists too actually missing what was really going on which was maybe the ground for it was paved by relativism but has become um again an extremely moral and ideological um also well, the, uh, the ideology yeah. of the last man in a sense right it's the it's ideology selective
2: of the... breeding of the uh, of the wrong sort
1: yeah it is that i mean I, again tying to current events i mean you see with uh not even to get into uh israel versus palestine so explicitly <laughs> but uh but listen i mean regardless of where precisely you stand on that like um What's going on on college campuses is really eye-opening. I mean, these are not relativists uh, that are marching basically in favor of Hamas. These are people who have been fed um, a pretty pretty rabid third-worldist Marxist mm-hmm. vision. Um, you know, I, I can only imagine what Alan, Alan Bloom and Leo Strauss would think today. I mean, I think they would think that their project in as far as it was, um, and as far as it was meant to influence academia, it had totally failed. Um, I do, you know, listen. I do want to talk about Strauss and Bloom. I mean, they're they're sort of. Coesten um, says they're not totally relevant to selective reading in the birth of philosophy, uh, but but I, I find that maybe they are a little more so than he says. Perhaps, um, obviously, at some point we should actually just we, we should actually be talking about the eugenic angle that a lot of people listening to this are, p- are probably here for. Um, but nevertheless, I, I do, um, I, I do think it's, it's, it, I, I do think the relevance of Strauss, at least as a methodology is, is pretty, pretty central to, to Kostin's book. And, um, and it is interesting to think about kind of where someone like Strauss would land today. Um, and I, I mean, I think I sort of know the answer, basically the most, uh, vital, Straussians have been kind of pushed out of academia so I I think that the by far the most vital um organ of Straussianism today is the Claremont Institute which is basically aligned with with the dissident right so it's uh I, I I recognize this topic may not be as interesting to everyone as it as it is to me um but um yeah i mean maybe maybe that'll be more for the segment of this pod that's behind a paywall because it's a little more nuts and bolts but um but i do kind of want to get into that like the, the relevance of the straussian project how this book is and isn't a part how selective breeding the birth of philosophy isn't isn't a part of it um what mm-hmm. we can glean from strauss what we should make of him so i guess yeah let's bracket that for the you know our friends on art of dark they always talk about save it for the after dark uh we don't have a name like that the right?
2: after right
1: <laughs> yeah, just just blatantly rip them off, right? <laughs> um, okay, sorry, let's get back on track here. Um, well, I guess um without further ado, let's talk a little bit about uh eugenics. <laughs> um with, obviously so I'd I have a little section of my notes called, you know, what this book is not. Uh it is important to know, even though it's definitely a defense of selective breeding and, and therefore eugenics, it's not um it's not science. It's not like uh I've never read like the bell curve or anything like that. Um maybe I should, but I feel like I already know and you know agree with the arguments in it. Um yeah. but Coastin's but book is is not that. It's not like a scientific defense of HBD, uh, or nor is it a scientific attack on blank Slitism. It's, you know, philosophy, not science. Not that we need to make hay of that um distinction. But um it's not it's not, yeah, it's not um like a scientific look at hbd or breeding it's definitely not a practical guide for eugenics um those kinds of the 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 nitty-gritty uh logistics aren't really gotten into um there's a few hbd studies of dna that are cited in the introduction which again was glommed on later uh they're identified as groundbreaking sort of paradigm shifts uh and you know it's acknowledged that the academic mainstream is very much attempted to ignore them and hush them up but that at the end of the day and you know that's to, to someone who doesn't know too much about it that that may be eye-opening but that's only about two pages within the intro um he doesn't really get uh too far into what selective breeding would really look like uh you know there's no like breeding incentives pitched and and certainly nothing like sterilization or Genius. There's no uh,
2: spousal distribution
1: system, Matt. No spousal distribution system. A la <laughs> Spencer Grunhauer. Yeah, no, he doesn't get into that. Uh, caveat, I mean, he absolutely probably seems like someone who would not be against that. Uh, we have to that. Um, but it's worth noting, uh, you know, it has limited concern with the logistics. It's first and foremost a philosophic defense of um, selective breeding as an ideal. And as we'll see... By defending selective breeding as an ideal, what he's really um, defending is the basically the ruthless uh, pursuit of human excellence as an ideal, um, hmm. both in, in terms of breeding, but also in terms of, you know, shall we say lifestyle, um, you know, breeding comes to mean a lot more than just, um, I, I mean, ne- the, the, the reality of heredity and who gets to have kids and why etc those those never you know those are those are absolutely centralized in the book but nevertheless breeding does of course mean something more i mean this is the the same old handsome thursday bap stuff you know it's an advocacy Mm -hmm. of um of pursuing pursuing excellence uh in of the mind and of the body um but it comes with a very firm and and from from what i can tell from the limited stuff that i've read about you know heredity uh very well-founded argument that no matter how much you do in your life to improve X, Y, or Z, um, genetics are absolutely paramount. Agreed. And, you know, obviously, uh, obviously eugenics are, are very, very taboo. Um, they're frowned upon from most leftist perspectives, but also religious and Christian perspectives. Um, even, even by Christians with like very right-wing points of view, you know, reject them pretty soundly. And, um, fair enough. I mean, definitely if you're, if you're against, well, obviously if you're against abortion as we'll sort of acknowledge (laughs) uh, in a moment, like, um, you know, there, there's always going to be an either eugenic or dysgenic effect of, of any cultural pattern of abortion (laughs) or birth control. So, um, you know, there's, there's obviously good arguments against both of those things. Uh, not even to speak of gene editing, sterilize, you know, all these things, um, one can have moral objections to, um, but I take pretty seriously something that Coastin talks about and that other, um, a lot of other thinkers of time. I remember, I think my first, uh, quote unquote red pill on this was, uh, from the publisher and writer Adam Porfrey, who, who, you know, passed away unfortunately a few years ago, but he published, uh, Apocalypse Culture and a lot of other sort of Jim Goad era, Boyd Rice era, um, compendiums of different alternative points of view on topics like politics and uh esotericism <laughs> founded feral house publishing which still exists in an unfortunately woke form um but anyway he, he wrote an article called i think uh eugenics the orphaned science and uh made made some point that basically what you know what we uh what was once called eugenics has in fact lived on, you know, there's this notion that it sort of w- w- was, was born and then died with the Nazis. But of course, actually it lives on today, uh, under other, other names such as family planning and, and with obviously, you know, n- new technologies, you know, the, I don't even know what it's called, where you know, you detect for down syndrome and all these things. It lives on, um, Parfrey points us on coast and Koston gets into it pretty explicitly as well. Um, you know, the, the, these things, the line basically, the and, and in today's world, you know, most of the, the breeding, the eugenic choices are put in the hands of the mother. Um, mm-hmm. but nevertheless, so that's different than the types of, um, not pro, you know, the types of breeding cultures that Kosen's talking about. So that's already a difference, but nevertheless, his main point is, um, you know, this is going to happen one way or the other. I think I, there's very few specific quotes I have in my notes, but I do have the quote from, um, from selective breeding, you know, what we call eugenics with alarm is going to happen one way or the other. He says something to the effect of, you know, if you saw uh, if you saw the left side of the log off, it still has a left side. Um, Mm. You know, basically, I I don't know if you have, you've probably, I think we've talked about this in the past, or if you have thoughts on it, like basically one way or the other, this this does happen (laughs) with uh, Yeah. That
2: I mean, you know, essentially nature is eugenic. Yeah, that make is that what we're we're getting at here?
1: Yeah, nature is eugenic, but also um well not necessarily I mean mm-hmm. how to put this. Basically that um every little cultural and uh every every little cultural and political choice is going to have effects that are that are broadly either eugenic or dysgenic. Um
2: Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, like, you know,
1: dating apps are going to have one effect. Um, Yeah. The fact that there's like a student debt crisis arguably has a very isogenic effect. Um, All these little things have effects. Absolutely. It's everything from, um, you know, uh, less explicit indirect effects to, um, you know, the more direct manifestations, which has to do with a lot with, you know, abortion legality, birth control. Um, Obviously, I don't know. I'm not the expert on like where, you know, various gene editing and various screening for defects type.
0: Yeah.
1: I I don't know the legality of where those things stand, but, but suffice it to say they exist and will continue to exist and and probably are expanding in most of the Western world. Um, So this stuff continues to exist It happens one way or the other. Um, Even more broadly though, I think that, And this is what Kostin really talks quite a bit about in the introduction. I think, um, you know, basically female and and to a slightly lesser extent, male sexual selection uh, has effects that can generally either be categorized as eugenic or dysgenic, when you when you agree, Um, you know, the the, 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 in addition to all the myriad cultural factors that are affecting what you know, who does and doesn't breed, um, just the general cultural trends that, you know, point women in one way or the other um, yeah. sexual marketplace um, is going to have its effects on on two breeds. and <laughs> What is it? What yeah. is it? Yeah.
2: I mean, largely, uh, if you know, the sexual marketplace is fully unregulated. I think that actually introduces an interesting gloss. And I, I think in Bronze Age Mindset or somewhere else, BAP may have suggested that Um, The unregulated sexual marketplace is in fact eugenic (laughs) in some respects in that, uh, you know, women will go for Chad Thundercock. That being said, um, the broader culture is not eugenic. So they're going for Chad uh, Thundercock does not mean he'll impregnate them. It just means he'll bang them out a lot and children will not necessarily result from this union. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, I I, I suppose in some respects, it's just a very, um, there's so many variables at play in our complex society as to whether a certain, you know, um, uh, policy or procedure is eugenic or dysgenic. Because, like, is it more eugenic to have, enforced monogamy yeah probably because it leads to more happy families and stuff like that but if you're trying to truly breed an aristocracy is it more eugenic to have um a, a deregulated sexual marketplace uh perhaps but that it means that you know you also have to have a society that supports women having children with, you know, uh, uh, one man who fathers children from many women and having a society that somehow supports this, uh, you know, marshalling the resources of the other men <laughs> and, uh, yeah. this uh, obviously is not, well, I'm not obviously, but the, our society is not geared toward this. And, you know, arguably nor should it be. <laughs>
1: yeah. Yeah. Um, again. Um, you know bap doesn't get necessarily get into the nitty gritty of uh what what is and isn't eugenic or dysgenic about x y or z setup <laughs> um, and obviously it's a complicated picture i mean obviously there's some there is something eugenic about um a more free sexual marketplace in a way um because uh you know it, because it creates more of a survival of the Fittest, I suppose, type scenario, um, but that doesn't really seem to be reflected very well in who is and isn't having kids yes. these days at all. Actually, um, for you know, the intention of this pod, it just has the intention of selective breeding. And the birth of philosophy isn't to get into why exactly that is. There's again, as I think I sort of alluded to, it's 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 such a massive web of different factors: yeah. economic, cultural, uh, demographic. You know, in terms of immigration, yeah. everything. It's it's such a such a massive picture that um that who's to say obviously yes like ultimately um to- totally enforced yeah to- totally enforced monogamy um may in fact be d- dysgenic by certain definitions um BAP doesn't really comment on that uh but y- you yeah, know I mean are there. but but yeah really what what he focuses more on. Uh, in terms of in terms of the free sexual marketplace which he does talk a, a lot about which you know he's citing f roger devlin and a lot of other thinkers that would be familiar to people on the dissident right is um basically just what it really highlights is how inegalitarian the process of breeding is how um mm-hmm. fundamentally inegalitarian and again this is where i was i was i, I saw a parallel uh, you know i think uh a real parallel because I know Coastin slash Bap uh you know is a big palia fan. Uh, but I saw a real parallel between between his introductory chapter and palia's in Sexual Persona because he talks about um how how brutal of a forced nature is and how breeding mm-hmm. culture kind of give us gives us the best insight into this. Um things like yeah. uh the enforced monogamy of Judeo Christianity. Uh, as well as you know, other cultures have it too. You know the laws of Manu in Novetic culture. Um, I'm not mm. I'm no expert on them, but they had very precise guidelines. Mm. Um, I, I think it was mostly monogamous. I don't think there's a lot of polygamy in that culture. I, I, correct me if I'm wrong. But it, either way, it was it was a it was a tightly, you know, defined uh, lays out very explicitly. Um, you know who should or shouldn't be breeding. Um, even in Islamic law, which I also obviously know very little about, um, you know, does sanction polygamy in in many cases. But the point is these these things were 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 tightly defined um structures. And, and BAP, I mean, Coastin, you know, talks about how um basically one of the first stages in as civilizations progress is is getting very explicit on these rules. Because um breeding culture kind of if if liberalized um it can make you look straight into like the part of darkness of, of nature what nature is as a yes. brutal selector um the example that coast insights is um you know the pain of the incel something that we all <laughs> on this side of things uh think about quite a bit um you know this painful process of being uh, you know, it's not even just incels, though. it's you know, the painful process for all of us, incel or not, about you know, kind of learning your real value on the sexual marketplace and how low it can be. Obviously, lowest of all, no value incel is the most painful. Um, and and Kostin, you know, cites our favorite Michelle Welbeck as one of the great expositors mm. of that. Um, but you know, really for all of us, probably even for for Chad on some level, uh, this process is ugly and, um, you know, kind mm. of it certainly shatters most romantic notions um, about sexual pairing. Um, it's this, and, and we all in the age of Tinder uh, get to look in, you know, for better or worse, most, for, mostly for worse in material um, terms, but possibly for, for the better in terms of an intellectual understanding of mm. nature. Um, we all have to sort of look into this um, this dark reality of the inegalitarianism uh, at the heart of breeding culture, and and by extension, the, the basic cold, uh, you know the cold, um, what's the word, the indifference, the cruel indifference of nature. Um, yeah, what really, uh, yeah, go on. Rather yeah.
2: than, um, social ties, rather than ties of obligation, there is a biological imperative that exists. And I was talking about this. I think we discussed it a bit in our episode on in the company of men mm-hmm. i discussed it recently with last things on an episode right. we did yeah. also on in the company of men and um i think it's very relevant for uh for this pod i forget um where i heard this or you know how uh but um a uh, a female lion when oh. a rival oh jesus yeah, <laughs> you know say what i talks about when this, a, okay it, yeah. maybe that's where i got it from when a, a yeah. rival male um you know attacks her uh, her tribe her you know her pride and her pride of lions kills her mate and kills her young the female lioness goes into estrus goes into heat and that is a, if you, you know, ponder the implications of that. absolutely uh, A very dark um, uh, phenomenon. And, uh, but that is, I think what we're talking about when we, we talk about there's a darkness to this. Yeah. There is a darkness to biology, to nature. Absolutely. And uh, that is kind of, I think crystallizes exactly what that darkness is. Absolutely.
1: Yeah. Not to just, rattle off examples of the animal kingdom but they're very illustrative i remember this was like a black pill uh moment for me as a child i saw some you know we all watched animal planet at some point right and there was um some special about hippopotamuses and we you know nature specials are, are are um notoriously uh hard to watch um and that's actually that that little fact there um Gosh, you know Animal Planet maybe has all the red pills you need because I uh <laughs> I also want to talk I also had a little talking point about uh the dog show because <laughs> I think that's a good example of breeding which we'll talk mm, about later. Yeah. But um but no, yeah, Nature Specials indeed. You know nature you can uh you know you can learn stuff <laughs> right even from uh even from something so silly because you know when they're talking about nature they they really do mean nature they're showing things that happen in the animal kingdom this lion example uh heartbreaking terrible to think about but anyway i yeah. remember as a kid seeing a special on like a hippopotamus and it, mother and baby and baby hippopotamuses are are quite cute um and it's like an hour of like this this mother hippopotamus teaching its baby to swim And then some male who wants to mate with her instead comes in and kills the baby. (laughs) It's just terrible, like traumatic thing to see as a kid. Cause I guess, I don't know. I mean, I'm not a hippo specialist, but I suppose that's maybe what happens sometimes is you kill the offspring of your competitor. Right. Uh, Yeah. Terrible. But I remember even as a kid feeling, by the way, I mean, I was young, like this is like, I I felt genuinely dark about this for a number of days after watching it. Um, But, but it occurred to me like that, baby hippopotamus was a male like it would do the same thing when it got older um Hmm. so this is the kind of thing we're talking about um we're kind of that that's kind of talking to talk about the competition and the violence is kind of the male spin on it what really kind of cued me into like oh this is this is kind of like camille Polia's introductory chapters i remembered specifically the more female oriented example that paulia gave which is um of the darkness of nature she was Hmm. discussing uh, which is basically, um, she cites unwanted pregnancy, you know, um, and specifically, you know, getting uh, pregnant via a rapist and how this is kind of, you know, if, if the 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 sort of the pain of the incel or perhaps even the brutal pains of sexual competition, even resulting in death are the black pill um, for men, I guess the black pill for women is the, you know, reality of, you know, you could literally get pregnant from a rapist, you know, it just... Both of these things are different angles on the fundamental indifference and cruelty of of nature and um, this is foregrounded in in Kostin's introduction. Um, mm. but if we can you know hang on to this kernel of remembering the darkness and the inegalitarian nature <laughs> nature of mm. nature the, the the cruelty and the inegalitarian quality of nature, if we can hang on to that, and not lose sight of it um, that will kind of take us through Koston's entire thesis um, because this stuff about eugenics and breeding um, is, uh, you know, absolutely paramount to everything he'll proceed to argue about philosophy and tyranny and how they're connected and culture and how there's a cruelty behind high culture. Um, Yeah. I mean, we've, we've gotten to the point in the pod, you know, this is a, you know, I feel a little bit like we're going all over the place, but I think it's okay. I think you know the nature of this book is that it's expansive, and um, you know, obviously yeah. we, we talked a little about eugenics, which is kind of the 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 red meat that a lot of people are going to be listening to. Um, you know, in my head, it's like, are, are, am I take am I doing too much throat clearing before getting into the key ideas of the book? But like, we can't just blabber off about Pindar and Plato and Nietzsche. It's got to be grounded in something, and I think yeah. what it's got to be grounded in is this idea of the cruelty of nature. Um and that's Agreed. from Nietzsche. You know, and from BAP, you know. Uh the basic idea is that this these basic realities of nature, in as far as they are cruel and in, in as far as they are inegalitarian, um, have to be kept in mind because everything, uh not everything, but you know, so much in human culture throughout uh, the aeons really throughout the centuries, at least since um, you know, we, we, certainly within Christianity. Uh, well, I, I don't. I don't even mean this as a critique of Christianity, but certainly there's a lot that would distract us from the darkness of nature, shall we say? There's a lot that wants to put a um, that wants to disguise that. Uh, in Absolutely. fairness to Christianity, you know, obviously Nietzsche is very anti-Christian. Bap in a more sympathetic way is anti-Christian. In fairness to Christianity, I don't think. Uh, that it is part and parcel of Christianity to deny the fundamental darkness of nature. I think that's part of the fall from the garden, right? Uh, I don't think it's inherent yeah. to it. I think there's more based visions. but, um, so I'm, i I know i I'm not um my I myself am not um, meaning this as a diatribe against Christianity. Uh, Nietzsche, as we'll see, um did blame Christianity quite a bit, uh, as is well known, uh, for basically forgetting. The realities of nature uh but but we'll get into that um yeah basically just let's let's bracket this this idea we've landed on of the you know the inegalitarian and cruel uh realities of nature as one of one of the key insights that will take us through uh the whole of the work absolutely um sorry i'm getting back to my place in these notes I guess uh on that note, um we we should go back to um the beginning, you know, and kind of chart out the anthropology and history that Coastin lays lays out. Before we do that, I do want to say one last thing. Um and 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 Bennett's phylactery, who, you know, he is a Christian. Um he does a good job on his podcast of kind of pointing to this. Uh, the basic, the the modest proposal, shall we say, uh, about eugenics is this, if nature and breeding is inherently inegalitarian, which we've agreed it is, um, yeah. might we at least <laughs> might we at least uh, structure our culture and perhaps our laws surrounding breeding uh, so as to be as beneficial as possible to the production of human excellence. I think that's kind of what the modest proposal is is you know what i mean um yeah because it's always going to be it's either going to be inegalitarian because it's going to be um you know mandated by specific laws one or or the other even probably even more inegalitarian i mean i I think the basic structure is this like uh you know there's this sexual revolution idea that like this is somehow liberating things um and yes it indeed casts off old laws um, but the, and this is a unique, this is a quite a relevant topic when we think about the, what liberalism does in general, right? By opening things up, uh, it actually creates something that's even more brutally hierarchical. Um, we see that in economics as well. And, and that's what happens with breeding. So again, the modest proposal is given that that is the case, um, how can we structure uh breeding in such a way that it best promotes human excellence excellent um i think that's that's not the thesis of selective breeding the birth of philosophy per se but i think in as far as the thesis is about eugenics and again because again it's 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 mostly philosophy it's mostly laying out the history of ideas and kind of how these things function philosophically and anthropologically that's really what the thesis is about. But in as far as there is like a positive message about eugenics, I would, I think it's that.
2: (laughs) Um, Yeah, no, I co-sign on that completely.
1: And, you know, Bennett's phylactery again, not your um, standard. Well, he is a natalist and probably has been accused of all sorts of being in favor of all sorts of eugenic eugenics types ideas. Um, Nevertheless, you know, he is a Christian. He's not some weird gene editing Nazi guy. (laughs) Like, he just absolutely not yeah idea. so you know that's the that's the that's the idea in its in its most simple form um which is you know i think i think that's a good you know kind of note to end on in terms of the specifically eugenics portion of this uh podcast but um yeah to to go back um because this is this is some of the stuff in Coaston's uh thesis that that was most eye-opening for me as like a you know not someone super well versed in anthropology, not someone even super well versed in history compared to some others, um basically lays out how um the the birth of the idea of nature and culture specifically in greek culture, which i think, you know, there's reasonable claim to at least in the western world say this is where our, our idea of nature originally comes from is the greeks. Mm-hmm. um how the discovery of the principle of heredity and other things pertaining to the reality of nature, how that idea um, became central to the political life of the Greek aristocracy was then radicalized as Greek philosophy when that aristocracy felt itself beginning to weaken, which we'll get into um, Mm -hmm. and how it's also this birth of philosophy from the idea of nature is tied at the hip with political tyranny, um, that is the the real work of Kostin's thesis is is mapping out that history, um, and he does this through anthropological study. He does this through reading the poetry of Pindar, uh, the you know the ancient Greek poet. Uh, he does it through in a very interesting way through Plato and through a novel reading of the dialogue Gorgias. Um and he very much does it uh, as a you know as Bab will always as slash Costa will always say, you know, I'm just a presenter of Nietzsche. He he kind of lays out how Nietzsche ties all this together. Um he he even acknowledges that that you know, as he has with Bronze Age mindset, and even this book may in some ways just be a representation, uh, a re not, not not a representation, but a representation, I suppose, of of ideas that were in Nietzsche. Um, however, I do think there's some so, some some novel there's some there's certainly some novel angles on it he says something like he'd like to think he makes it even more explicit what exactly he's saying uh certainly the reading of Gorgias I don't think I don't think it's been presented anywhere else so th- there's a lot of novel material in this but it is worth acknowledging in many ways uh Kostin as always is uh is, a, is an avatar of Nietzsche um and that um but but even even the process of bringing nietzsche so squarely into modern concerns is it is is a feat in its own right so um that's that's kind of how he presents things i'm actually going to read the thesis statement i think we're at the point where hopefully it'll make some sense and this is what Kostin's thesis is <clears throat> This thesis is an attempt to show that the aristocratic regime and aristocratic morality is the origin of the idea of nature, that at the point at which a historical aristocracy starts to decline, its defenders in abstracting and radicalizing the case for aristocracy in the face of its critics come upon the teaching of nature and the standard of nature in politics. Uh, It is precisely this teaching of nature so corrosive to all convention and all morality that is politically explosive and that explains the deep connection between philosophy, the criminal study of nature outside the city and outside the myths and pieties of the regime, and tyranny, the criminal and feral regime of rule outside and above all law and all convention. Um, so that is the work of Kostin's thesis is to outline that. I think it's going to be the work of most of the remainder of this pod to, uh, try and unpack it. Um, it's obviously a little complicated. I mean, I guess, Dan, at first blush, um, does any of that make sense sense to you? I I think it requires quite a bit of sort of anthropological and philosophical unpacking, but I'm just curious if you have any.
2: Yes. Yeah, no, I mean I, I think there's, you know, definitely a lot there. Definitely a lot to um to say about the um extent to which philosophy has emerged um from a you know purportedly the decline of an aristocratic elite and it's kind of um it's you know it ties to the Uh, I think at least in my mind, hearing it, the, uh, uh, hard times make strong men, strong men, uh, make good times, good Mm -hmm. times, that, that whole cycle. And so, um, yeah, you know, how, how do, uh, you know, strong men deal with good times and how do they stay strong? And I, you know, perhaps I'm misinterpreting, but I understood, uh, Kostin's response to this to be in some respects a, an examination of the extent to which philosophy is used as a, a tool by the aristocracy to continue to hone its blade, as it were, even in the absence of um, you know actual threat and but also a kind of dangerous tool because it can lead to uh, mental and spiritual degradation
1: degradation absolutely um yeah no i think there's a lot of truth in that i do think it's kind of related to um strong men make good times make weak men make hard times um it's a similar process to that although it's not exactly that because i think the scale of it is a little more grand than that i Mm. think very much in the nietzsche slash bat picture of things uh, it's not like greek philosophy uh it's not like, you know, Greek aristocrats, Greek aristocrats, hmm, how to put this? I think it's very much like uh, the strong men and the Greek aristocrats made good times, which was the flowering of um, philosophy and high culture. Absolutely. So those are good times. I think in the picture we get from Kostin, the good times are kind of, it's not that it's not that philosophers are weak men by any means. It's just that there's almost more of a simultaneity of the flowering of high culture and the decline. Like they kind of happen at the same time and because of each other in a way that's sort of hard to unpack. Um, But definitely those then create, you know, hard times in some sense. Um, And I do think, philosophy yeah i think that that way you put it of philosophy being a tool with which the aristocracy might um continue to sharpen its blade is very apt um but it's not just sharpen its blade in the absence not just sharpen its blade uh in the absence of real threats but also to continue sharpening its blade um in the case of what nietzsche and Coastin argue about Plato basically to continue sharpening its blade uh, for centuries and centuries after the aristocracy is extinct. Basically mm. um, that's kind of what he argues happens with the Platonic school of philosophy, um, better known as Western philosophy. Um, is that uh, jumping ahead here, but I mean, what what else can we do? Uh, basically that Plato founded, Pl- Plato's founded the school based on Socrates teaching uh, in such a way that it would be accessible to the masses, which um, w- was a manner of trying to preserve some teaching of nature in a way that could be accessed long past the point of of the Greek aristocracy. The basic argument that Nietzsche makes and that Coesten co-signs on uh, is that um, that that process of making it accessible to the masses worked too well, and that. The idea of nature that dark those dark realities of nature we were talking about uh was lost in philosophy after, especially after it got picked up by christianity um we'll get a little bit more into the history there um but basically broadly speaking i think what you said is, is accurate you know there is this it definitely has to do with a, a good times hard times cycle and it definitely has to do with uh, philosophy is definitely like a way of, I, I really like the imagery you used, you know, of, of sh- mm. continuing to sharpen the blade, um, but <clears throat> the way it plays out in history uh, gets a little more muddied than that, because it's not a you know, there. I, I do think there's truth to the basic good times makes, you know, strong men make good times make, make, know, weak we men, make uh, times. I think there's truth to that I think in the case of philosophy, the, the idea you know, maybe it's too grandiose but the idea is that it basically happened like once <laughs> like, like philosophy mm-hmm. got became platonism you know dominated uh until nietzsche nietzsche mm-hmm. um it, it's like more more a more aeonic than generational mm-hmm. i think in in Kostin's picture um mm-hmm. but but basically yeah no i think i think you're on the right track um yeah i said i would do this chronologically so let's let's get into it the basic anthropology, okay. I don't have I'm not an anthropologist. I don't necessarily have like this the studies. I'm sure there's some anthropologists who would um reject this or something. Uh, but but I'm very swayed by by Coast's argument, you know. Um, to begin with, and this is another example of where a concept in selective breeding and the birth of philosophy is quite analogous, uh, directly analogous to something Bap talks about all the time, and that is the longhouse. Um, I think the first uh thing to understand is the idea of nature uh, emerged first in opposition, you know, nature or phusis in the Greek uh, emerged in opposition to uh, a word in Greek nomos, which basically means convention or law. Now, the domination of convention or law, uh, in so many words, is the longhouse. Um, You know, this is, you know, kind of BAP 101. There's this basic understanding that the natural state of man (laughs) is to, to live in these, um, communities, cities, civilized, whatever you call them, um, that are, uh, totally, totally, uh, totally dominated by convention and law. You know, this is, you know, sort of magical and superstitious thinking, you know, this is pre philosophy and pre science. Um, you know, man is under the, uh, they're just completely under the domination of of convention basically uh and in Coaston's picture yeah go crucially
2: on. right under the domination of women and the old
1: those yeah, who are um,
2: yeah. not in favor of young male risk-taking behavior
1: absolutely yeah the the domination of of women and the old people who are not um as he said in favor of male risk-taking behavior um I can't imagine any uh recent uh <laughs> global some, happenings uh, that uh benef- that that are that are that are analogous to that. But um some safety propaganda, perhaps. Yeah, perhaps. Uh yeah, I mean he he doesn't always perseverate on the on the women thing. I mean, I think there's some acknowledgement that some of those no most longhouse um type communities um you know probably did have nominally you know male chieftains um but the crucial point he makes is that you know even uh that you know even even with male chieftain type situations you know it's it's basically someone who is the product of um or even the slave to the wills of many he has met has a lot of like actual examples in the book we're 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 skirting over but you know you have examples of Chieftains who are like ritually killed, and like that's an understanding when they become leaders. Like that's, I wish I didn't sound dumb here. I, I wish I had the actual example of the culture where that mm. happened. But you know, it's it's you can imagine if you've studied even a little bit of anthropology. It's like you know, you get to be the chieftain, you get to have sex with this many virgins, but then on your 40th yeah. birthday, you're beheaded by the. You know, there's there's a lot of um, convention. You know, it's the rule of convention uh, that would dictate that, which is quite different than um, yeah the eventual emergence of the the real tyrant which we'll see yeah uh, so
2: because in, in that sense the the chieftain is actually a servant of the people a servant and of, yes is, exactly. um yeah subservient to the the group
1: right i mean and, and that's um that's relevant when looking at mo- again because when looking at um even very modern examples like communism perhaps i mean there's some people who like to like to make like base stalin type arguments but but basically like it's kind of analogous to this thing we're talking about with breeding and inequality. Um, there's like society is inherently hierarchical, right? Like even the most liberal and even communist societies have hierarchies pretty explicitly. Um, but hierarchy is not inherently good either. Like if you have the wrong, if your if your political life is governed around the wrong principle, as it is in the case of communism, um, the Absolutely. type of uh, leader you have, it doesn't matter if he's nominally a strong man, it's still this awful longhouse slave, you know, rule of the many. Uh, yeah. We could get, you know, again, the national Bolshevik uh, based communist types would say like, actually, communism only pretends, uh, per- you know, only pretends to be the rule of the many. And in fact, there's these based hierarchies that preserve tradition i I don't even want to get into the debate about that uh maybe so maybe there are you know Mm. more authentic uh political structures that are in the guise of communism but basically yeah um, bap argues and i think it's compelling that a this life of the longhouse (laughs) is um was the historical norm and b that it's something that we're being dragged back toward not only by communism but in his picture and i find this very very compelling i must confess uh even by mm-hmm. modern incarnations of liberal democracy are basically uh dragging us back toward um it's hard to say. It, it obviously doesn't really feel like we're being getting dragged back towards the rule of convention but it, it's some some version of that when you have basically the dry husk of judeo christian morality uh-huh. enforced by women in the old right and i mean uh again yeah uh, again i can't yeah. imagine um <laughs> any any global events that might and I'm being stupid, but um, you know this yeah, is you know, something when you look the at the with these. Yeah, the safetyism, uh, wokeism in its own rights. Uh, yeah, it's the domination of unexamined moral principles, basically. Um, and like, yeah, it looks different now, but yeah, there's something compelling there. But anyway, to keep on track, you know, the, this is this was the norm and european and other societies this rule of the nomos so what happens is um some you know there are some people who can i my my anthropological vocabulary not not what i wish it was mm-hmm. uh you'll have to read kostin's book to really get the the meat and potatoes of uh, of what um of what this really looks like but basically um you know you you, you have societies that are structured around uh the slave longhouse morality, the domination of women and the old, uh, and they stifle young male energy. But at some point some of those young males still are going to physically and psych you know, physically and intellectually, psychically move uh, you know, towards the edge of civilization. Now, um, you know, that maybe that happens within a given community, but what Cosin's really talking about is also just the emergence of pastoral peoples, you know, people who, whose employment was animal husbandry, which will also be relevant, mm. uh, in a, you know, shepherds, basically, you know, living at the edge, you know, mm. you, one can imagine them literally. And I think Bennett, Bennett's phylacus yes. talks about, this. you know, one can imagine them literally looking from the hillsides at the city below at the slum below, perhaps. Um, and, that physical distance, like through that physical distance, gaining some kind of intellectual distance as well. Like the two things happen at once. I'm pretty compelled by that. Um, You know, as a side note, I want, one thing I want to say, like a, a lot of these things we talk about with Kostin and Bap, it's like the more you delve into it, the more every little funny thing he says kind of makes sense. And, you know, one, one thing I remember from a Caribbean rhythms episode is this recommendation that you know frog twitter types don't start political don't start explicitly political movements because those are going to get shut down uh, and they're often cringe and, and lead to infighting anyway but you know start a hiking club and uh, with, with, with <laughs> and, and yeah we all love nature right it's good exercise but like no there's something more to that like if you go outside like there is something yeah. edifying about that about stepping away from civilization there is something philosophically edifying that coast and roots back to the very foundation of the idea, you know, the very finding of the idea of nature, which becomes the very founding of the aristocracy as we'll get to. Um, Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's something really. Absolutely. In that, and something very that, you know, the more we dig in, the more you dig into, I think some of these Bappian little um, interests, the more you see that they're all rooted to this fundamental anthropological uh, setup in this genesis of, uh, of philosophy and of, of it, high
2: culture. There's another point about pastoralism, which I don't think in uh, Bennett's pod on um, selective breeding, he mentioned, and um, I'm not sure if Bap got into it. I would imagine he must have, but in addition to the uh, the physical detachment of being on the Hill and looking at people and that yeah. in turn imbuing the man with a, you know, a sense of uh, elitism a yeah. sense of you know ind- individualism,
1: a distance um, on convention. Yeah,
2: yeah. Um, shepherds, you know, right. crucially, they have to, uh, as opposed to farmers. Farmers don't really have to worry about people stealing their harvest. They the, because, you know, in order, you're not going to fall asleep as a farmer and wake up. And in the middle of the night, someone harvests all your crops, because that's a lot of work that would take multiple days. Yeah. It's just not something that, you know, you really, it's not really an issue, but if you do have a herd of sheep, a herd of cows or what have you, you do need to actually be able to protect them and, you know, defend them against people who would try to steal them because in the middle of the night, someone could make off with all your sheep. Someone could make off with all your, uh, your cows. And in that situation, you, um, you literally have no way to stop that actually, because you do have to sleep at some point. And unless you have like so many, you know, men that like you always have a man who's awake watching the herd you, you're in a situation where you are vulnerable and um, you in order as a shepherd, in order to protect your flock, have to develop a reputation for violence such that if people are to try to steal your herd, they won't do that because they know you will track them down and you will commit violence against them.
1: Absolutely. Yeah.
2: Yeah. And so this is kind of like if, if pastoralism is the birth of a male, a patriarchal aristocracy I think crucially that, uh, that is part of it. And I bet Bap gets into it in, in selective breeding. As I actually well. don't,
1: I don't, hmm. I, you know, it's a long book. Maybe I, maybe I'm forgetting that part. I don't know if he does bring that up, oh. but I, I think mm-hmm. it's highly relevant. Um, and a very good point. I think there's other, other funny things about that pastoral lifestyle that tie in as well. I think, yeah, I think what you brought up highly relevant another one is diet it's the the raw egg nationalist true yeah. you no know, herbalist here stuff you know the pastoral diet of meat and cheese uh makes your your body stronger makes you grow taller uh than that of uh cultivated grains that farmers would be eating so they become physically stronger as a, again you pointed out having a reputation to be warlike uh also you know from the get-go before these people even become conquerors which they will um was important even just for the maintenance uh, of that lifestyle i think that's uh very relevant and the one thing that i kind of touched on but that is um absolutely crucial is the discovery of heredity you know if Mm. you are raising animals you discover that uh you know the sheep (laughs) the sheep from the strong fathers are stronger and on and on and you know down right down to uh um you know the, the littlest details of uh the way their ears look and things like this uh again not a hereditary not a heredity expert but like my understanding of it is, is, you know, within dogs and within other animals, you use, you really can see hereditary differences within just a few, uh, lifespans of, um, of animals, which is, which is well within, you know, the single human lifespan. So the idea is that, um, you know, such people's before they necessarily had the words for it, you know, discovered the fundamental principle of heredity and nature, at the exact same time that they're becoming stronger, uh, more warlike, uh, distanced from convention, um, they're not philosophers or scientists yet, but they are. They are well on their way. They are well on their way to find, finding Greek culture, basically. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, um, obviously, there's different. There are different uh, groups within history that may or may not have done this, but uh, Kosin focuses on the Greeks. I believe it's uh, you know again. I don't know when one group becomes another in the case of Greece, it's the Dorian Greeks conquer the non Dorian Greeks, right? <laughs> I guess that's how it goes. Um, and, and that's the ethnogenesis of the Greeks more proper. Um, but to back the up road a step
2: to Sparta.
1: Yeah, no, I, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm not, you know, I don't have my historical names at yeah. my fingertips, but, but yeah, basically, And but just back up a step. To go back to that, you know, life of the longhouse we're talking about. This was a very interesting argument because I think it's contra to a lot what a lot of people might suppose uh, without considering it. But I, I'm very swayed by it. I, it seems to correspond to anthropological reality. Basically, Cosin says that a real aristocracy, a real leadership class, uh, is not going to emerge from a longhouse society in its own right. Like they're going to get these chieftains maybe sort of oligarchy type groups even that are, but they're still essentially the slaves to the many. You don't really get an aristocracy, a true upper class, an upper caste, as we understand it, without the existence of conquerors. Basically, these pastoral people we talked about need to conquer a nomos, you know, a convention, a longhouse society, put themselves atop of it that's how you get aristocracy that's the birth of greek culture dorians over non-dorians again you know anthropologists out there maybe for woke reasons maybe just for because they have different takes maybe there's some argument against this that something else could happen but like when you dig into it and coasting does it's like yeah that does seem to be the case i was thinking even with um you know he talks about that this is kind of an interestingly um topical not not quite topical but you know within the last centuries we see it the, the Hutus and the tutsis in rwanda you basically have one group who mm. is a more conquering type people uh i don't even remember which one's which actually on the uh the
2: the tutsis <laughs> yeah. are the aristocrats yeah the, uh, the hutus are the the uh longhouse people
1: right and they're seen as being hardworking, but also like not too bright and irascible yeah. um and and meanwhile the Tutsis you know live in as much conspicuous luxury as they can um you see it there but you also there's, there's this basic structure of, of 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 like a upper lower class society being founded upon original conquering i mean consider this like the royal family in england uh is still can still trace its roots back to william the conqueror mm. um so you know as ba points out as coast points out uh, oftentimes you know the, the upper class and the lower class will proceed to mix to the point where they're you know ethnically they're the same you know that that may happen It happened with the greeks it's certainly with the english you know but nevertheless the basic structure of the conquering people kind of remain at the top and define the aristocracy um we can we can basically find that everywhere um i'm trying to think of, of, of other examples here but yeah cer- certainly in the greek case i think the theory of the founding of the people is these dorian greeks conquering the non dorians um and when it's easy enough to understand when you have that when you have a conquering people um yeah. well averse in heredity from their pastoral past you know obviously strong and (laughs) warlike needless to say um it's simple enough to understand how the principle of the political the principle behind the political life of such an aristocracy would be um selective breeding would be continuing to promote the um you know continuing to promote the highest specimens and characteristics they see amidst their own people and and pushing that into the future in order to preserve that structure of domination which again um doesn't necessarily mean um that one group is like subaltern to the other like there's there's a mixing that occurs um but nevertheless it's still founded in like in the case of the greeks you know selective breeding continuing to promote these characteristics um i, I guess the theory is that you know greek aristocratic life was was quite explicit on this uh, again to, to go back to like the english example um who knows like i i don't know to what to what extent is like british aristocratic culture norman i, I mean i guess probably substantially would be my guess. And even if, even if it's not like we must preserve, we must all intermarry because that's, you know, that can actually be bad for genetics. Like there is some mixing that occurs, you know, between the Norman conquerors in the case of England and, um, you know, the more Germanic people they conquered. Um, I I mean, I I must assume (laughs) that, that um, at least for a while, you know, some, some, some of the principle some of the principal breeding standard Um, not even necessarily that was written into law but just just but a lot of this is like pre um obviously pre-philosophical and i don't even know if it's necessary. the idea is necessarily that they have like laws about breeding per se it's a lot of it just happens unconsciously right like it's these these are who can who are considered sexy these are who considered who are considered to be the people who should should yeah they're they're literally stronger you know what I mean I guess I'm just trying to say that like well
2: for um you know. I think both um social reasons like marriage packs between aristocratic families right but also for uh like yeah kind of emotional you you don't want your child to marry a commoner and exactly. emotional attachment to um you know your your genes Uh, And also for, you know, again, practical reasons, if you have a kind of patriarchal aristocracy, um, it's a militaristic society. If your son is like a dumb pussy, he's not going to be able to carry on the family name and defend the the honor of your family. And that, that too leads to the crumbling of your society. So I think... You know, these aristocrats, these founding aristocrats knew that, let's say they're the Dorians, let's say they're, you know, probably before the Dorians, the Yamnaya conquering the the early European farmers, they knew on some level, I would think that they're Ability to conquer is rooted in their personal characteristics, yes. and they knew that their personal characteristics are hereditary, so they would want their children, their sons, to have those characteristics so they can continue to dominate
1: and control society. Absolutely, and I, I, again, um, I don't have the details at my fingertips, but I imagine the theory would be that like really more explicit breeding. Laws are much more of a a product of like a wider, more mass culture that we're not dealing with yet. Uh, I think a lot of this probably was just much more intuitively understood yeah. and followed, as it continues to be to this day too. A, a lot of a lot of um, obviously horniness and, and and quote unquote breeding culture uh, is is pre rational, it, but there is yeah. nature. You kind of pointed out earlier, like is nature inherently eugenic? I mean, I suppose that's where that idea of nature as an inherently eugenic force, as a, at least as as a force inherently promoting some kind of strength and fitness, comes in. Uh, yeah, so- I think. To yeah. jump
2: in here, the uh, the deregulation of the sexual marketplace, I think um, it has probably, in some respects, and uh, I think Murray, Charles Murray would co-sign on this, has had a eugenic effect. In that there's assortive mating, and you have high uh, IQ people only mating with each other. Whereas you know in a, the in an era of enforced monogamy, let's say the '50s, whatever, you um, you know maybe the girl down the street, you you know you you marry her, yeah. or some or you're in you know um, get your first job in the city, some uh, shop girl, you know she catches yeah, your eye. Yeah, you, because you can
1: even meet. Yeah,
2: yeah. But whereas now, like you know, because of um, there's this deregulation, there's no longer like you can't go here, you can't go there. Like you literally, the what is more deregulated than dating apps? And so you have people like you know, women saying like, "Oh, did he go to this school? Does does he have yep. this jawline? Does he?" And you know, and men too. Like you know, yes, okay, you're you know attracted to attractive women, but if you're looking to settle down. At least i looked i you know I considered what school did she go to, and you know what um you know what's <laughs> her job, what's her you know um what what are her values even so um yeah i mean yeah, i think absolutely we are at an era of um a, a you know a the deregulated sexual marketplace has led in some respects to a level of um eugenics here. Absolutely.
1: You know, I, I hadn't even been thinking of that, but this this is a worthy aside. We're gonna get back to Coast in a second, but this is absolutely a worthy aside. Andrew fucking Yang of all people in the war on normal people, mm. it was his book, uh talks about how smart about how when he was growing up, a lot of smart people were considered to be kind of nerdier and less attractive and how, if you look at Ivy league colleges today, it is really evident that a lot of the highest IQ people are also some of the most attractive. Um, mm. and I, yeah, that, I guess that is eugenic now there's other <laughs> factors <laughs> that in place, such as that, you know, Ivy league education is now basically entirely paused. So that's not good. A lot of these attractive youths coming out that aren't necessarily going to have kids or have as many, and of course, immigration and other demographic issues, mm-hmm. um, really throw a monkey wrench in this, but nevertheless, it is very evident that yeah, within America's very strange mongrelized upper crust, upper caste, mm-hmm. that there are some eugenic things going on. I mean, fucking, Hey, I, I guess because we're on this podcast, I'll just come out and say it like, you know, you see, uh, you know, uh, I mean, I, maybe I'll cut this out of the pod because it's spicy. But you know, like our our good buddy uh, <laughs> Francis Nally with his whole Asian fetish thing. Uh, yeah, yeah. Listen, um, people have issues with Pillator for any number of reasons, but um, I, I remember he was one of the first people I found online, and one thing that really struck me about him is like it is true. Like there is this kind of. <laughs> dominant often very attractive and high iq class of like half asian people yeah like of a, like a the-
2: hop yeah. elite of yeah. i mean i think that's true i think that like generally you see i mean it's a meme it's a meme at this point right that you have uh a uh a kind of woke hoppa class managerial class of uh asians indian east asians indians jews and woke whites or yep. woke, you know, non-Jewish whites, Gentiles, and they they're forming this kind of like <laughs> governing class. Then you have the um you know the you know less educated uh whites more Americaner types Hispanics and what have you congealing <laughs> into a another class and then you of course have the uh the underclass which you know is pretty static um you know obviously um you know uh african and of you know indian and other right. assorted derivations
1: yeah no i mean you can just delve into this stuff and it's a bit of a rabbit hole and it's not we live like the victorian england was regard to sexuality uh what we are with regard to this que- question of i think racial mixing like yeah. you can't talk about it, but it's
2: there, but it's happening. Um, and yeah. I don't
1: usually talk about it too explicit myself because it's spicy, but I mean, fuck, I don't know. We're on this podcast. We're talking about selective breeding and the birth of philosophy. It is i not the on the truth. So. Yeah. I <laughs> mean the other, if we're going to go there, the other, the other element is, um, you know, BAP is half Jewish. <laughs> yeah, of course. And that is kind of one of the other, I think, interesting high IQ, uh, Groups that's emerging is like the new, uh, I don't want to say Michelin, but <laughs> what other yeah. one is there? <laughs> I mean, I, Plus, I think it's has uh, used pretty widely, Michelin. yeah. Um, for one thing, that's relevant to our scene <laughs> with Yarvin and Kostin and uh, others who <laughs> be on this very podcast, and Dan yeah. Um, but no, hey, like listen, I'm not trying to get weird about like Jay stuff or anything, but like, uh, it's another example. Um uh, and you know another thing I'll say about uh you know definitely coasting is a lot of people who fall into that category are uh quite attractive and perhaps <laughs> I'm gonna cut this out of the podcast. <laughs> no no maybe more, more uh... maybe more attractive than the non-mixed variety. <laughs> that's what I mean? that's what I, yeah. I like
2: to claim, Matt.
1: Yeah, so no, I, I, I certainly am not here.
2: going to require you cut this part out.
1: Right, right, right. Yeah. Well, um, I guess attractive the
2: attractive Michelin is... hypothesis.
1: Yeah, I think it's it's very, very real. I mean, it's the same with the, the Asian thing, too. It's you get some of the more. It, it, it's so you hear here. I myself am getting shy about saying some of this stuff, but, you know, you get uh, attractive attributes of different groups.
0: They yeah,
1: even more attractive when combined. Um, that wasn't really on my bingo card to talk about, <laughs> uh, in this pod. Cause Kostin is mostly talking about very old things, but I, I mean, that is, very, I think very relevant to modern Yeah, is <laughs> race mixing.
2: <laughs> well, I mean, like, I don't know how deep we want to go into this, but I think there is something that, um, Nietzsche said to the effect of, um, So Nietzsche was writing what in like the eighteen seventies, eighteen eighties, something like that. Maybe very early. He
1: died in nineteen hundred. So
2: okay, so he suggested both eighteen
1: seventies and eighties. Go on, sorry.
2: Yeah, yeah, suggested that uh, there, there, there would come a time when the um, these you know physically sickly but uh, ascendant Jews of Europe would uh mate with the gentiles (laughs) on such a level that they would produce like a a super race of jews who rule the world (laughs) and uh Uh, i mean i don't know if um you know that exactly came to fruition but i mean certainly you um you do have you know a a situation and not just uh, among jews but you know with um you know asians and you, you know other and upper class whites and what have you this a sort of mating going on where you have um yeah the same way you i suppose with dog breeds you know if you mate them together like top of the breed mm-hmm. you get something and you know it might not look great but sometimes it does and sometimes you get the kind of best of both worlds i know our uh, mutual friend robert is a fan of the uh, alicia silverstone type alicia silverstone yeah. the uh, the semitic scandy i suppose <laughs> something, something of that nature um definitely. yeah so you know it's definitely something that is playing out in our society in real time uh, much to the consternation of some.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, I, I think it's a. I mean, maybe maybe we paywall this part or something <laughs> because it's spicy, but it's it's relevant. Uh, it's very relevant, I think. Um, where were we? We were talking about yeah the the foundation of the Greek aristocracy and how selective breeding would have been. Um, a fundamental principle thereof. Yeah, uh, along with if the. Not, codified yeah. felt absolutely and then i guess we had a serendipitous jumping off point to what the equivalent of something that isn't codified but felt is in the modern day and i do think we perhaps hit the nail on the head um, <laughs> let's maybe let's maybe talk more about that uh if we do a, a subsequent recording to this that's more bonus content we could
2: in the in the, after- right. in the afterright. In the afterright yeah. episode. Kevin's gonna Thanks, kill
1: Kevin. Thanks, Kevin. Thanks, Brad. Yeah. Um, because it's spicy but 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 interesting. Um but to keep it back on selective breeding and the birth of philosophy, uh what to give a little structure of Coastan's thesis, you know, chapter one basically lays out kind of what we've been talking about, searching for the birth of this concept of nature kind of in early societies going on to the founding of the Greek state. Chapter two, let me see. Let me get the titles of these chapters. Chapter one is called a brief phenomenology of the philosophical political life. Um, Phenomenology being the study of, you know, sort of as they appear. Uh, That's you have to delve a little further in to really give a good definition of phenomenology. But basically it's that, um, you know, the idea of uh, that very Heideggerian, idea of um looking at things without all the baggage of intellectual abstractions and rather just simply as they are so you know Coastin mm-hmm. laying out the phenomenology of, of what we're talking about these felt realities of heredity that's this yeah. every of that in animal breeding and nature and then the you know political reality of that with one group conquering another chapter two is dedicated and um entirely to the poet pindar it's called the idea of nature in pindar Um, really getting into Pindaric poetry. I'd love to just get right into it. It's a bit above my pay grade. I mean, I, I, you know, Kostin Bap, you know, reads all this stuff in the original Greek. um, Wow. Great scholar uh, on that in a way that I'm not. But suffice it to say that, um, you know, he discovers these principles, these principles of nature are, um, you know, are, are laid out within Pindar's poetry. Much of it is, you know, uh, odes to winners in athletic uh, competitions. You know, it's this praising of physical might as well as, you know, perhaps intellectual might. Um, you know, a, a central piece of pre-philosophic Greek culture comes comes to us through this poetry, through Pindar. Um, to give one example that I really liked, um, I mean, I'm, I'm avoiding saying, I'm not going to say <laughs> avoiding saying that? i like this because i'm a sagittarius but you know the the yeah. uh centaur chiron uh i figure a greek archetype centaur half man half uh goat or half sure yeah half a, not that's pan no half 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 man half um horse basically right is that what a centaur yes no. yes a centaur
2: is a <laughs> uh, half man half horse i i believe yes yeah
1: yeah you know he's also you know an archer or, or bull, maybe fucking hell let me i'm going to have to look it up um something like that yeah uh and you know an archer with this i this image of the uh, yeah half horse half human is a centaur mm. um you know th- this image of the, the archer is is a very like pointed you know sky cult uh n- anti longhouse image of projecting your will into the air right so this figure of of chiron uh, the trainer of youth uh basically uh, again, just to give one brief example from from greek culture pre philosophy uh there's this mm-hmm. idea that the youth must be trained by um a teacher who is half man half beast, and therefore the education is this to cite the title of the recently published passage prize two compendium. This is this process of rebarbarization rewilding that mm-hmm. is a necessary part of education. Uh, in the Greek, uh, in the Greek system of thought and in the Greek culture. Um, again, this image of like a hiking club, like you take the youths out into the woods, like there needs to be this distance on mere convention in order to understand nature. Um, you know, that's exemplified by Chiron, uh, but also, you know, through Pindar's poetry. Um, and yeah, that basically takes us up to, um, that basically takes us up to where uh bit f- to the birth of philosophy essentially um which is uh, time for another uh big concept here, but basically again, um mm. the theory is that uh philosophy emerges not necessarily like a natural outgrowth of these Greek views on nature and heredity, but I mean, it is an outgrowth of it, but it specifically emerges when the aristocracy begins to feel itself in decline. When the culture of the many of the masses is beginning to take over and weaken, uh, the aristocratic identity, um, yeah. At absolutely. that point philosophy emerges as what? Well, as a radicalization of these principles of nature and understanding of heredity that existed before it was called philosophy, but now it is glommed onto, codified, made more, you know, made more um explicit by by a group of people in this case, um, you know, this pre-Socratics and then eventually Socrates and the academy, this group of people within the aristocracy begin to codify these principles that previously had governed um, aristocratic life in a way that was kind of unstated, as we said uh, they now make it really explicit um, I feel like that's a pretty big concept I just sort of stumbled while I was saying, but Basically, you know, the foundation of philosophy as a study, which, by the way, is also, you know, it of note, Costin doesn't say this, but of note, you know, it's also the prehistory, at least, of the founding of science. um, Yeah. Is it's the beginning of intellectual life, really, is basically this Greek aristocracy that had found itself to be beautiful and created many great specimens and this wonderful, you know, this culture of of greatness oriented towards human uh, excellence, naturally, this occurred naturally after you know to put it in sort of cosmological or, or perhaps even Nietzschean terms like this this great again that image of the, I I, I hearken back to that image of the arrow you know this great um linear uh aimed uh striving for human excellence you know in Palia you have the she talks as much about the Egyptians as the Greeks. You have this movement from the Venus of Wellendorf to the Nefertiti bust. And you see that, you know, it's this movement towards, you know, um, and, you know, away from the muck, essentially, and towards a, a uh, an appraisal of the cerebral and, uh, especially in the Greek case, the physically strong form, um, you know, all this stuff after, centuries and centuries finally emerges from the muck like that's mm-hmm. basically what greek culture was uh and then at some point as maybe maybe i'm a little rusty on what exactly the political realities were but basically just again you pointed to earlier mm. heart strong men make good times make you know you know there there is that basic structure like once something becomes successful it yeah. you know there's a decay it's spengler it's you know the, the, this happens naturally like there's If something is successful, you know, more and more people are going to sort of flock to its orbit and a lot of them are going to be midwits and mediocre and there's the aristocracy feels itself to be in decline. And at that point, that's when what was previously unstated becomes philosophy. And there's even this wonderful, again, another point point that's also picked up by BAP, the idea that like... um, you know, he actually talks about. I've always been compelled by his image of, um, like the Buddhist monastery as a uh, as a mm. as a reformulation of like the the step warrior band. I've always loved that image, and I guess yeah. it's an anthropological theory. The same could be said for the academy in Greek life. Like this was the recreation of that original warrior band spirit, um, yeah, within intellectual life you know there's this idea like politics is war by other means in this case perhaps philosophy is politics by other means but like there's this substitution not in like a um not like a degenerate masturbatory or even like um what's the word sublimated form per se but more so but i think something more authentic than that like a genuine recreation of the freedom once enjoyed by the Greek aristocratic culture. Genuine recreation of the striving towards excellence. Once the political reality of that was threatened. You recreate it. Through the life of the mind. Is. If I'm not bastardizing this. Is the birth of philosophy. From the. uh, You know the principle of selective breeding. In yeah. Imagination. I think so. Yeah. So. But it's not just that, it's also a general general flowering of what um Kosen and Nietzsche call high culture. Um I'm gonna back up a half step. There's a wonderful, wonderful quote from Beyond Good and Evil that I also mm. I think I'm the first person to say this, and I think I'm right. Mm. I think this quote from 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 Nietzsche uh tells us the real origin of the name caribbean rhythms for baps podcast uh you'll hear it when i say it uh i think i'm the first person to say it and i'm pretty fucking confident um you know if Costa ends you up your
2: first folks
1: yeah uh, tell me if i'm wrong or if bap here whatever but like so the quote is from beyond good and evil about. I think this.
2: Oh, I'm sorry. I Go was gonna on. say I think this might be our tagline for the episode. We reveal the origin, the etymology of Caribbean rhythms.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, I've had myself <laughs> so convinced of this, um, but we'll get to it. So basically, it's a uh, something that Nietzsche described. I don't. I'm not. I'm missing. You know, if I'd really been gung ho, I mean, I have 20 pages of selective reading the Birth of Philosophy notes. If I'd really been gung ho, I would have read more Nietzsche and prep for this episode. I would have read Gorgias again. I would have read all these things, but I didn't. So I don't have to, it's been a while since I've read Beyond Good and Evil. I don't, I don't think um, Nietzsche's necessarily talking directly about Greeks here. I think mm-hmm. he's, he's definitely always talking about Greeks, at least a little bit with Nietzsche. But I think he's mm-hmm. kind of talking about a general process that occurs. Uh, but he's basically talking about the process of um, how high culture flowers when political, mm-hmm. when aristocratic political life begins to decline. I, I'm just going to read it without, uh mm-hmm. without, further ado um Nietzsche says at this turning point of history there manifest themselves side by side and often mixed and entangled together a magnificent manifold virgin forest-like upgrowth and upstriving a kind of tropical tempo tropical tempo that's what I think really there, yeah. comes from <laughs> a kind of tropical tempo in the rivalry of growth and an extraordinary decay and self-destruction owing to the savagely opposing and seemingly exploding egoisms which strive with one another for sun and light and can no longer assign any limit, restraint, or forbearance for themselves by means of the hitherto existing morality. It was this morality itself, which piled up the strength so enormously, which bent the bow in so threatening a manner. There is that bow imagery. It is now out of date. It is getting out of date. The dangerous and disquieting point has been reached when the greater, more manifold, more comprehensive life is lived beyond the old morality. The individual stands out and is obliged to have recourse to his own law giving. Uh, you know, that's Nietzsche to his own law giving, his own arts and artifices, for self-preservation, self-elevation, and self-deliverance. Um, so that's Nietzsche. A little hard to unpack, but we'll try. Um, basically, you know, it's it's in the flourishing of culture at the exact moment of aristocratic decline. Um the idea is of uh hold on, I had I had I had some notes on this. That I wanted to mm. specifically cite uh basically if you if you think of the image of of a flower and i think there's real biological corollaries to this you know um a flower with a hard stem it can flower at any point but if it doesn't flower and grow taller that potential flower energy is turned back onto itself making a harder and harder stem into the point where all seems lost and then it flowers and it's all the greater because of the discipline that had gone into the cultivation of that stem. Does that biological image make sense? I think so. Yeah, Yeah, I mean, I think then that that is the image of the the Greek aristocracy founded upon this harsh principle of selective breeding, of the pursuit of excellence. um, At the moment when it's evident that the writing is on the wall, that the owl of Minerva has flown, or (laughs) however you want to put it, um, you know, it's time to flower. And this was basically Nietzsche's image of kind of like his, that's what I was saying earlier, it's not quite strong men make good times make weak men make hard times but it's it's related to that, like that's his and I think Spengler probably picks up on it as well, haven't read much Spengler I will confess, but it has that image of, you know, I think it probably, that image can apply to human lives and, you know the creative process perhaps so it, it, it's one of these fundamental will to power adjacent that, you know, um, mm. parts of reality that I think you can chart in individual lives. Uh, I think you can chart it very broadly over the span of civilizations in the case of Nietzsche and coast. And they're talking about it very specifically, um, with regard to the mm. Greek aristocracy, that principle sends itself in decline. And then the flowering happens. Philosophy is part of that flowering, um, tragedy, you know, Nietzsche's birth, the first book, the birth of tragedy out of the spirit of music, um, mm also sort of charts an element of that flowering um, culture blooms and bursts at this moment when political life is threatened. It's a weird point, but you know, seems to certainly correspond to the Greek case. And I think corresponds in a lot of ways to, um, you know, to other cultural moments as well. Uh, not necessarily all of them. I think Kostin even just kind of talks about how like Roman culture while praiseworthy in many respects was kind of just carrying the torch of this flowering of Greek culture in a way it didn't yeah. necessarily have its own blooming in that sense. I guess the the reason I push lightly back on the strong men make good times thing is because that, you know, there, there are, there are cycles that happen every generation, so to speak, or or with successive mm-hmm. generations. I think one, something that Kostin is arguing and something that Nietzsche argues is that actually these real flowerings, these really grand moments in history when humanity really you know, becomes what it is, so to speak, are actually quite rare. And I, I don't know what the other good examples are besides Greece. I think, you know, maybe maybe Kostin and, and, and Nietzsche are Grecofiles uh, to an almost maniacal degree, but nevertheless, um, you know, I find it, People have always said, you know, all Western philosophy is a footnote to Plato. I think that's still the general understanding. Even Nietzsche, who is the greatest critic, perhaps, of Plato, um, Mm. is still citing Plato. I mean, this is kind of like where it all comes from. Like, this is the birth of the West. Uh, Again, there's other ideas out there. I know Paulia and others would say, well, actually, like, Egyptian was all, you know, the Egyptians were also the birth of the West in some sense. But Mm. Yeah, it's a compelling image to me. Um, yeah. One sort of interesting meta point, and I don't know if this is reaching or perhaps fawning or downright corny, but I, I, I did find myself thinking about this. You know, I'd say, obviously what Nietzsche and Kostner are talking about is this flowering of culture um, that happens to an entire people, in this case, the Greeks, but I stand by... I don't know if this is like self-help in any way, but I stand by there. You can take things. And obviously Nietzsche has always been a, a writer that is thought to have profound implications for the individual life as well, and certainly for uh, creativity. And I, I couldn't help but think, you know, is there some analogous structure here? Because I kind of had, um, again, going back to you can't really separate Bap and Coast in, entirely. I, I very much think that selective breeding and the birth of philosophy provides the philosophical and anthropological backdrop, you know, hard one from from decades of scholarship, uh, to what Bronze Age Mindset is as an exhortation. You know, and again, Coastan Baptist explicit, bronze age mindset is an exhortation, not philosophy. Well, selective breeding is philosophy, not exhortation, but I I view them as 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 one piece in that sense, like. The one thing is the exhortation that is the sort of yeah, kind of antinomian burst of creativity um, effect of someone who had, you know, who who subjected their mind to these more profound philosophical and anthropological ideas for 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 years and years and years in school. So my meta comparison is like, it, it is Bronze Age mindset, the flower um supported by the hardened stem of selective breeding and the birth of philosophy and one can appreciate the flower without appreciating the stem um but the flower wouldn't be there without the stem uh, does that resonate at all with your reading of these i don't know
2: yeah no i mean i, I could definitely see that that um you know he um uh, did the the hard work of training writing um right. yeah. the the thesis and um his bap persona and um bam itself is a sort of uh a period of flowering of that um of that ideal of, absolutely of all that hard work
1: yeah and and when he talks about when bap talks about creativity and writing on podcasts he often says something sort of similar to that he says and i'm not sure i as a writer i'm not sure i entirely agree with him i think if you really want to Right, you sometimes have to sort of do it when the muse isn't necessarily with you and just kind of fight through it but but there's definitely something aspirational what bap says which is like you just kind of let it come to you and write it out i think he i don't remember how long he says he it took him to write bronze age mindset but it wasn't long mm. um i i mean it's 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 a process that i recognize in my own creative process like the the did it's and it's not necessarily a, a direct disagreement, because I think those mo- with writing, I think those mornings of not feeling inspired, those are your training. And then when you do that enough, you can finally position yourself uh, to be able to properly channel the muse when it comes. Um, yeah, but absolutely. and I'm not just trying to like make this like, oh, it's a writer podcast. So we're going to talk about this. No, I think it's I think this cultural process is highly relevant to to individual creative endeavors and i think that i do think it's reflected by the bronze age mindset versus selective breeding bronze age pervert versus coasting thing um and that i think yeah absolutely again if, if we're to take the idea seriously that this founding of the school of philosophy in athens you know the academy was this structure of like this aristocratic training by a new means then like we yeah perhaps to Plato's credit and then um, saved by Nietzsche and later Strauss, perhaps <laughs> to an extent, uh, we can still access that. Someone like Coastin can still access that within academia. You can still go through that training and you can still um, sort of stumble upon that flowering, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. And that his
2: persona, but uh, you know, certainly um, all personas in a certain sense are more of a um a gamble a kind of you know an expressive as opposed to the kind of like a rote training of um you know certainly there's martial training but the the work the work of creating something and uh then uh, you know a more flowering period um both you know with certainly kind of like expressing yourself, putting it down in, you know, not a kind of more conservative thesis, but more of an exhortation, like with BAM. Um, you know, other, you know, it it there's the potential for good and ill. And I think that is, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, mm-hmm. but my understanding of this is that um uh coasting is Uh, recognizing and part of this is a a recognition of the fact that philosophy uh is you know a tool and a tool can be used for good and bad purposes
1: yeah uh, absolutely um i mean he wouldn't even obviously he's kind of thinking in a beyond good and evil beyond good and bad framework uh it's Mm -hmm. not clear that he's necessarily against tyranny for example although he doesn't necessarily co sign on all tyranny but you bring up a good point that's the Necessary trend. Is-
2: I meant more, not for tyranny, but for the degradation of man. You can use philosophy to embrace, um, you know, the culture of resentment. You can use philosophy yeah. to embrace a, a, you know, an, a, you know, a, you know, a theory for to support bad lives and bad decisions.
1: Yes, no, I think it that for, is
2: for the good. Yeah.
1: And I think that's essentially what Nietzsche argued. Ended up happening Um, again. This we haven't even gotten to the Gorgias. Coaster's reading on the Gorgias yet, but basically, um, the argument is. uh, Well, uh, might as well might as well bring it up. I mean, um, I haven't read the Gorgias since college. If I'd really been gung ho, I would have reread it. But basically, among other things, you know, the dialogues about rhetoric and and much else, but uh the Gorgias pits Socrates against Calicles and Calicles is probably seen as a mouthpiece for ideas that would later be picked up by the like of likes of Machiavelli and Nietzsche, mm-hmm. uh, basically arguing for a version of might makes right and for a version of antinomianism that is you know, bucking off all laws in favor of the will, you know some some version of the will to power argument that Nietzsche makes, mm-hmm. and some version of that is applied to politics. Um, and Kostin's, you know, there's a lot in, uh, Kostin's thesis that is not exactly controversial. Like we all know that the Greeks were very into selective breeding. We all know that the Greeks were skeptical of democracy. Uh, those have been de-emphasized, um, for obvious reasons. Uh, but, you know, Kostin's not really striking anything new there, but things like his reading that his reading of Gorgias is, uh not widely accepted uh he basically argues that in line with this straussian notion of reading between the lines that mm. socrates's arguments are really bad in the Gorg- gorgias against callicles you know um he quotes po- points out like there's been renewed interest in the gorgias you know as democracy on the global stage has found itself under criticism for the past several decades you know there's mm. this notion that maybe we could find in that um some idea within antiquity that would defend the notion of democracy in Socrates, um, but Cosin thinks exactly the opposite. He thinks that the arguments that Socrates makes in favor of democracy and against tyranny are basically bad arguments, and that they're purposely bad, and that Calicles' arguments, which Socrates does indeed praise within the dialogue, you know, basically sizes up Calicles as a worthy opponent, which is uncharacteristic within the Platonic dialogs Uh, mm basically by presenting good arguments from calculus and very, very bad arguments from Socrates. The idea is that Plato was purposely hiding something between the lines, uh, which is fascinating. It's, it's um, kind of picked up from the Straussian school of reading between the lines. It's obviously a heterodox reading of the Gorgias, but uh, I find it pretty compelling. Again, I haven't actually, if I, I may make Gorgias like a holiday read. I think it's a very specific wavelength to get on. Um, to, to read some of this play that you know in my workaday life it's hard to do but i am interested in rereading it uh richard hanania in his review mm-hmm. of selective reading does say he reread gorgias and he comes short of completely agreeing with Kostin's reading on it but he admits like indeed the the arguments that socrates makes are are pretty fucking bad um you know including arguments like uh that it's I just one example that Hanania and I think Kostin as well cites is that he argues that it's the person who that that it's happier to be a person who did evil and got punished than a tyrant ruling which mm. you know few people would really be convinced by he's basically conflating the notion of like more his own you know prepackage notion of moral good with being happy and uh, you know again I there's other examples of that. Hanania points out it's hardly the only time Socrates makes weird arguments that don't really make sense. Um, yes. But yeah, I mean, there's something to be said for the fact that you have these very good might makes right arguments from Calicles in the dialogue, um, and you don't have any satisfying rebuttals. Kostin's idea is basically this was by design, and that uh, it was a purposeful attempt to hide the secret you know will to power type teaching again that darkness of nature i kind of bracketed at the beginning you know teaching about that and how it applies to philosophical aristocratic and political life um basically that there was an attempt to hide that within the school of philosophy while at the same time making you know plato basically begins to associate philosophy with a lot of um a lot of the associations we still have with it. There's this notion that philosophers are like a cousin, you know, um, sort of like an intellectual cousin, and in some cases, literally the same. You know, there's many priests who have been philosophers. You know, that they're, they're it's basically a priestly type, the philosopher. Um, sure. We can look at it that way. Like, uh, you know, we, philosophy is its own vocation, but it's, you know, I guess what someone like Nietzsche or Koster would argue is that the philosopher. Is a warrior by other means rather than a priest by other means, <laughs> and that um, in in that disguising philosophy uh, as the province of pro a, a pro social message, a pro virtue message associated with virtues like justice and um, and others that Plato and Socrates associated with, uh, there was this attempt to preserve. A successful attempt, but perhaps a too successful attempt is what is the turn of phrase uh, mm. to preserve philosophy. Uh, and indeed, you know, philosophy would continue to be studied and studied to the present day. But the contention is that the real root of it, the founding, you know, the foundational understanding of nature and and of breeding. Um, was lost mm. uh, specifically when platonism got picked up by christianity which is you know a revelation based um system of belief and basically that kind of took away some of those more hard-edged that more hard-edged understanding of things that would have otherwise been more easy to to uncover mm-hmm. um does that all make sense I, we're, we're in we're in the weeds of it now but yeah
2: yeah Yeah, I mean, Um, I would say so. It definitely charts a kind of like through line from, you know, where we were to, um, you know, to the, you know, the triumph, if you can call it that of philosophy today.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. And um, I mean, I don't I I don't want to lose any pieces of this, but uh, but part of this and part of something I probably could have stated more explicitly earlier some of what Cosin is trying to show is that the um you know it, it's somewhat well known and i remember learning about this when i you know studied plato in college you know he obviously socrates was killed because philosophy was associated with tyranny he was a, he was killed for corrupting the youth one of his students is Critias, who's one of these one of the 30 tyrants who for a time mm-hmm. in the history of greece i guess wrestled, you know destroyed the democracy and ruled over it were eventually defeated but he was mm-hmm. a student of Socrates, as was um, Alcibiades, all of these tyrannical figures were, in fact, students of philosophy. I remember thinking, like, there's a notion you get when you study philosophy and Plato sort of these days. that's like, well, you know, these are sort of like the anti-intellectual midwits, like, you know, that are angry that, you know, Socrates is challenging the way they think. And therefore, they just kill him. Um, Which is, I mean, that is, that's not totally inaccurate, but what Kostin is trying to show is that the association with tyranny uh, was not was not unearned. That basically, it's valid. And and the reason for that is this. I may have to look back at his thesis because it it was a point that I, you know, I had to read the book and sort of reread parts and think about it. Like, what is the connection between tyranny and philosophy? Let me get back to the thesis because rather than jumbling around I'll, I'll put it in Kostin's own words you know basically the connection is i'm just going to reread this part oh. it is precisely the teaching of nature so corrosive of all convention and all morality that is politically explosive and that explains the deep connection between philosophy the criminal study of nature outside the city and outside the myths and pieties of the regime and tyranny, the criminal and feral regime of rule outside and above all law and convention. Basically, the argument is there's something beyond good and evil about philosophy. Philosophy, because the idea being, this is from Nietzsche, you know, I find it compelling. I think even if you're a Christian or something, you can find this compelling. Morality <laughs> I'm gonna sound like a sound woke for a moment here. Um, which is also not irrelevant to the way Nietzsche has kind of been used and abused. Um, but yeah, morality is a social construct. <laughs> I think that's basically the argument um, that doesn't necessarily negate that there's, you know, a God who, um, you know, is is a loving God and who has X, Y, or Z more moral demands. One could be like, a, a, I think a lot of smart Christians, you know, acknowledge that like, the history of morality is like very evidently some version of a social construct right like maybe maybe it's a necessary social construct that we must use to put ourselves in line with the will of god i think that's like the based understanding of it but Mm. yeah like it's it's basically that morality morality is a social convention you know what i mean like even even if one supposes that It does correspond to some transcendental reality for the stunning stunning majority of of people. It's not people who've had this revelation about morality or people who've reasoned their way into this morality. It's convention. We're dominated by convention. And what philosophy does is, as we've seen, as we saw going back to the very roots of the pastoral peoples, moving away from the city, um, what philosophy does is throw convention asunder. And how is that rooted to tyranny? Well, it's not it's not it's not like all philosophers are tyrants necessarily, but it's it's very easy to see how that intellectual understanding of things is a boon toward a might Mike, Mike's right politics basically um it's it's a the the difference between the tyrant and the fetishized chieftain is you know, the fetishized chieftain make some claim, or maybe others make it, about him that he is a ruler, you know, in line with some magical oracle or, or in line with perhaps even God. But the tyrant justifies his rule usually by some version of might makes right. Um, I don't know if there's exceptions to that. Some would say certain medieval kings were both, you know, divine... you know, inheritors of the divine right of kings and also tyrants. I mean, you could split the different you could you could you could split hairs over this but i i think the would you say the basic point is clear like the tyrant is the person who um who basically rules by this more might makes right antinomian argument
2: yeah yeah i mean certainly stepping outside of convention um yeah i mean that that being said for the tyrant to emerge from the aristocracy. The aristocracy has already stepped outside of convention. But I think um, probably philosophy in this instance, if you can philosophize your way into tyranny, you're kind of utilizing an additional tool to further extrapolate yourself from convention than had already been employed by the aristocracy. So... I mean I think that's uh, and you know correct me if I'm wrong but the way he seems to regard philosophy is it is a tool um that has yes amoral uses but it it's a tool that can be used for um destructive or creative effect shall we say
1: Yeah no I think that's definitely definitely part of it um that it can be picked up and and utilized by tyrants. Um and then as we also see it becomes um, kind of a boon to the post Christian social order as well. Um I'm wondering if this is a good place to stop. I may mean, uh Yeah that, that might be
2: good on my end. Yeah I mean we've
1: taken we've taken it up at least to Nietzsche and what I'll do it. Listen, this part, I, I I'm very happy with this conversation. I wish, oh, good, not, good. you know, there's a part of me that was hoping I, it's just, these are big ideas and they're kind of hard to really, oh, but like, yeah. I, you know, I, I love this book and I, I think that um, there's no need, there's no reason not to like really try and, expound all of it and i may you know in in talking about this i maybe sound less like a, a learned professor uh than i would like but um i think that you know it's kind of the nature the nature of kind of these topics uh even going back to some of this Plato's dose over time you know it's you, you talk about it and you 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 hash ideas out and um i would like to keep doing that like if we do a second part like and just kind of go through Absolutely. the rest and maybe maybe even double back On some of these and make it more clear. I think oftentimes, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a, talking about some of these ideas is a process of polishing more so than it is about simply laying things out. Like it's, it it takes a minute to get to the truth. But, you know, we've been going for two and a half hours. So I think maybe we, I think maybe we post the entirety of this without a paywall. Uh, We find a time soon to talk about the rest and maybe go for another hour, an hour and a half and, Okay. Knock this Sounds thing home. We'll figure out later, you know, what's going to be paywall and what's not. Oh, look, I, I'm not trying to be too much of a stan, but I, I really do think. Oh yeah. For me, I mean, way, like this gets sort of like. Yeah. yeah. Like obviously, like Yorban's another great thinker has a lot to say on current events and and the whole neo reactionary thing there. But I don't know. In terms of like a philosophical understanding, this is pretty yeah. much what I've landed on. This